You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Today is two uh, really special holidays all in one. Today is Juneteenth. Uh, Juneteenth, if you're not familiar, is a day we remember that almost two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, those enslaved in Galveston, Texas, heard the news that they were free. Two and a half years later, it took that long to get the news to travel from up in the north down all the way to Texas and Galveston. Um, A couple of years ago, in May of 2020, in the midst of coronavirus, uh, we, uh, all of us that summer, experienced a whole array of emotions and feelings and thoughts and opinions about justice and racism and the work of our country. And I've actually been really uh, proud of our crew over the last two years, because in this room there is not a uniformity of opinions and thought around these different complex issues and conversations, but there is a desire to actually be a unified community without uniformity. And so we started a, a journey then, a couple of years ago, of working through a book and thinking through what does it look like to be a people of justice and see justice at the, at the very heart of the gospel, that Jesus has reconciled us to God and reconciled us to one another, Jew and Gentile. Ephesians 2, it plays, it plays off one another. And I just want to invite us, even on Juneteenth today, to continue in that conversation and that learning journey. I'm thankful that we have churches in our city. We're not an isolated church, but we're part of a network of churches that are doing really good work in these areas and these conversations that we get to follow their lead. And so I just want to give that as an invitation to us as we think going forward, uh, the work of justice and thinking through mercy and all the different things that are happening in our world and thinking about uh, a complex conversation like racism. It brings up a lot of different feelings and emotions and things uh, and opinions And yet, like I've seen brothers and sisters even disagree, continue to walk faithfully with each other. And I say that because, to be really really frank, in the year 2021 and 2020, churches in our city literally split into two. Literally split into two over the stuff. Uh, Where they became so polarized and tribal uh, that literally churches split in two. And I'm just thankful that that hasn't been the case here. Uh, I think there's a sobriety that comes with that. Uh, But my hope would be that we continue to step in and learn and grow and have conversation partners that maybe we even disagree with. So that's just today, Juneteenth. I wanted to recognize uh, the awesome day that it is uh, that now is a national or federal holiday. Second thing is it's Father's Day today. Happy Father's Day. Uh, I've been thinking so much about uh, what it means to be a father and fatherhood this morning. Uh, And I, I was thinking how fathers have such a great capacity to affect generations. Like, uh, I think in the Bible, I think about um, the blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's also the flip side of that, that people's sin, especially father's sin, can also affect generations. Fathers have this great stewarding power they've been given to really to yield, hopefully, the, for the good of others, for the good of their kids, and, and to raise their kids in a way that uh, they look like Jesus. But you also recognize today comes with maybe pain or sorrow or discomfort, like we talk about also on Mother's Day, where maybe we haven't had the experience of uh, an, our father, our biological father, the father who raised us, reflecting much of what Jesus was like. 
And so I just want to hold that intention before us to both celebrate the goodness and beauty uh, and also to, to mourn or lament maybe the stories in this room of fathers that have not been present. Um, I've been thinking about the, there's a Rembrandt painting, The Prodigal Son. You've probably seen it before, and it's the older son is standing, towering, and then you have the younger son before the father. And Henry Nouwen has a great book on it. And in the book, he talks about how we're not only the younger son or the older son, but we're invited to become the father as well and to welcome lost sons and daughters home. And so regardless of whether you're a biological father or not, if you're a man in this room, the invitation, I think, is to provide that welcoming fatherly welcoming home the lost sons and daughters back, just like a mother would, back, and they might experience the fatherhood of God through your life. Now, that comes with all kinds of messy things in the church, and we have conversations around attachment and fatherhood and thinking about God and the care who's God as a father, but I think there is an invitation for us to play the role of father for others in the spiritual journey, to become spiritual fathers uh, for the men in this room, just like they're spiritual mothers. So, happy Father's Day. Happy Juneteenth. Now we get to the sermon. I don't know why I picked this passage from Mark chapter 7. It might be one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. And my brain, to be really honest, is very foggy. I can see you very clearly right now. But it's, it's just not, it just feels foggy. Um, so I want to I jump into the passage. Uh, what I'm going to do today is actually have you, in some ways, write the sermon with me. Uh, to have kind of a, sermons really are a communal discernment process. That's not just one person who has God's words and then you hand them over to somebody else. But rather the community should in a sense write the sermon. Now I was talking to somebody this week who, uh, uh, who is part of a church that has um, a satellite um, teaching that goes up on a screen. Like you'd sit in and you'd see the satellite come up. And we were talking about, he was talking about how he, he in some ways were, was lamenting that. And I was actually trying to encourage him saying, actually the cool thing about satellite could be that the campus pastor doesn't have to teach every week, so hopefully they've been freed up to equip and serve and disciple people. So this isn't a critique on that, but he was, in a sense, bemoaning the fact of, I wish that the person that I know, the pastor, the campus pastor that pastors me, was the person that I would hear from every week. And what he was trying to make a connection with is that sermons are not done in isolation. They're not done above above the uh, 30,000 feet. They should be done on the ground. And to be frank, I haven't been with any of you this whole week for good reasons. And so I feel a little disconnected in a healthy way. And so I want the sermon somewhat not to just maybe telling you some more things, but to give you some good context for the passage and then for us to, in a sense, write the sermon together and think through some of the implications as we live as God's people. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. If you want to turn there, we're going to read verses 1 through 23. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I said, hey, for the month of June in this Pentecost month, not just one day, Sarah was corrected, but a month of Pentecost, I was going to give you a paradigm for mission which was intentions and interruptions. That was a couple weeks ago. Last week, I was supposed to give you the sermon around feeding the 5,000, but it went way better this than, than, than me preparing something. But you hopefully got a chance to read it or at least see it. Uh, and the story there of the obstacle to mission, of how our limitations and capacities often sideline us instead of just offering to God what we have, like the little boy with the five loaves and two fish. And then today, I want to give you the warning in a sense, for the mission, or maybe a warning as God's people here from Mark chapter 7. So if you're there, let me read you the passage. I'm going to then give you five insights or clues or things to color the passage for understanding. And then we're going to dialogue together. You're going to dialogue with people around you, and then we'll dialogue all together as well and kind of build this sermon together today. So Mark chapter 7, verse 1. 
It says the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Just to give you a clue real quick here, apart from the five, the marketplace would be, would be filled with all kinds of unclean things, unclean people, unclean animals. So it's like it's imperative that you wash from the marketplace. Uh, it says, and they observe many other traditions such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right. Jesus is about ready to drop a bomb on these guys. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. The word hypocrite there is like the word actor, or someone who wears a mask like in a play. He was right about you hypocrites as it's written. This is from Isaiah 29. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Verse 9, he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside. Jesus is being, honestly, here from the language, he's being sarcastic uh, almost with with, uh, the the leaders here. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in, in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. I guess this is really fitting for Father's Day. I didn't think about that until right now. Uh, verse 11, but, you say, that if, but the, you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corbin, we'll talk about that in a second, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. Anyone who has ears to hear, let them hear. Verse 17. After he left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. I think it's really interesting. They asked him about this parable. Was he speaking in parable? Maybe he was, but it's just funny. I think this is why his response is, Are you so dull? He's like, listen, I'm just, I'm just talking to you plainly. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. It's very graphic imagery we've been given here by Jesus. Uh, he went on uh, in saying that Jesus declared all foods clean. Really interesting. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For is within, out of, is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, Envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is God's word. So before I let you loose in the groups here, this passage, I think, takes a lot of context, right? Because the gap between us and this, the original audience is very big. Not only a couple thousand years, but like cultural customs, like clean and unclean. We don't even have categories for that. We use much anymore today. So I just want to give you five insights. The first thing is where the story is placed in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, it's placed here right before Jesus is going to spend a lot of time with unclean people. The next couple stories, he's going to be with a blind man or a deaf man, one of the two. Uh, and he's going to be with the Syrophoenician woman, someone who's not a non-Jew. So Jesus is, in a sense, or what Mark's trying to do, he's trying to set up the scene here. of like, Hey, Jesus is about ready to interact with some unclean people. What are you going to do about it? 
So that's kind of what Mark's trying to be setting up this conversation here so that when the story is to come, and they're still confused, the disciples are, but that they can kind of have an idea of what's happening. The second thing is this, uh, the clean and unclean separation. This is like a, a category of the ancient world, especially in Judaism, they were obsessed about. And rightly so. Remember in the Old Testament, God's people were supposed to be a light to the nations, a holy, set-apart people, different from the nations around them. So clean and unclean was really important, what, what they ate, what, who they interacted with. They were trying to be this separate people, set apart, distinct. But what happens here and what, why this is dangerous is they were supposed to be set apart for the sake of service, for the sake of loving neighbor. But here they've been set apart now for the sake of just self-protection. Like now it's a matter of, okay, how do I, in a sense, keep myself safe from the world, not be defiled, when actually the mission all along has been to actually be set apart for the sake of service, for mission. So they're missing it. They're missing their role in God's story. And now they've developed these traditions that are obsessed about cleanliness, when cleanliness was always a means to an end, which was to serve and care for the nations. The third thing is this. Uh, he talks about the traditions of the elders. Uh, if you do some research on this passage, really the conversation is around this thing called the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and then this thing called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was, like in a sense, the tradition of how to keep the Torah. There was um, a lot of Jewish rabbis at the time who believed that the Torah, in a sense, was too ambiguous to give you the clear implications of how to live this stuff out. So the traditions were developed a fence around the Torah to, in a sense, keep the law. They wanted to keep the vision. Maybe to put it this way, uh, if the Torah is the vision for what human life should look like, the Mishnah, the tradition, is the how, the philosophy. How do you go about keeping the law? And so the, the rabbis were obsessed with, hey, let me, let's put all these traditions in place to help people, fa- keep, help people faithfully keep the law. So what is Jesus questioning? He's questioning the tradition, the Mishnah, the ways that the tradition now has gotten in the way of actually obeying Jesus. Which brings us to Corbin. Corbin, really interesting. He says, he says that's Corbin, or you practice Corbin. Corbin was a practice where uh, Jewish kids would, in a sense, surrender their resources and, uh, and blessing to be, in a sense, in service of the temple and of the priest. And it, it'd be like... Uh, uh, let me set it up this way. It'd be like um, if, uh, if you had all of these resources and, and, um, and gifts and blessings and instead of then passing it down when you die to your relative or your, or your kids, like beforehand you say, we're going to give all the money away to this organization over here and you're going to leave, you, in a sense, your kids out to dry. Just reversed here, basically. Because we don't understand this in, in most Western culture. Uh, most majority cultures do. But there was a high responsibility on taking care of your parents when they got older. We've neglected that and we've given that off to nursing homes and other places. And, and those things aren't all bad. But here the responsibility would be, hey, when your parents get older, like you get to steward what you have for their sake. Well, what's happening here is they're giving away their resources to the temple and to the priest. In a sense, neglecting their responsibility to honor their father and mother. So Jesus is calling that into question. Interestingly, too, the rabbis uh, I read this week, or the Jewish leaders, they would make it really hard for you to go back on your, on Corbin. 
Like if you, if you pronounce Corbin with your resources, they'd make you like pay extra just to get the money back if you felt like you made a wrong decision and you actually wanted to care for your parents and you wanted to obey the Ten Commandments. Like they would make it almost impossible to do that. Or they would charge a, a pretty penny to make that happen. So that's what Jesus is he's questioning. He's saying, look, here's how a tradition, here's a simple example of how one of your traditions is actually uh, negating your responsibility to obey the commandments. All right, last thing, last insight, uh, the heart. So one of the hardest words for us to understand in English because it's uh, uh, the connection between this passage and then our world is the heart. Like when we use the word heart, we're thinking like a heart emoji or your feelings, like how you feel today or yesterday when you ate that really good meal, like your heart was filled. Like, but the idea of heart was so rich in the Old Testament and in the biblical story, heart was the center of the whole person. All inaction and action flowed from the heart. Heart was the core of who you were, the core of your personality, the core, the orientating things of all of your life are found in your heart. And so here Jesus is saying, it's not what defiles you as far as what you put in your mouth or what you touch, but what comes out of your heart. That is, in a sense, the deepest part of who you are. And so I just want to frame that as far as heart, because when we think of heart, we think of, like, we think of emotions, which is part of it. But it's far more, it's will, it's the soul, it's the mind, it's all working together. That's the heart. That's the very core of who we are. So here's some, con- that's some context for this passage. Doesn't answer all the questions. This is where we get to write the sermon together, okay? So I'd love for you to turn to some people around you, and I'd love for you to answer the simple question. How do you see this passage as a warning for us as God's people on God's mission Jesus is giving a warning to the religious leaders of how they have let their tradition, in a sense, negate their responsibility to obey the Torah, to walk in God's ways. How might this passage 2,000 years ago, how might it implicate us? What, What warnings might there be here for us as we seek to be God's people in this time and place that Jesus might want to say to us today? So I'd love for you to talk to some people around you, some warnings that you see here from this passage. What are some things that you notice? And then I'll call us back, and I'd love for three or four people to share, and maybe we can build out some implications together of what God might want to say to us today. Ready, set, go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. You guys hear that? That's so good. Yeah, proximity doesn't necessarily equal uh, that you get it, that you have understanding. Case in point, the disciples, the religious leaders, those who had most proximity to God were actually sometimes the most dull or under, mis, not understanding. Yeah. But then, yeah, the Syrophoenician woman, who's supposed to be way far from God, actually has some of the most robust faith in the whole gospel account. What else? Yeah, so good. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, there can be such a, such a gap between our lives and what we say with our lips. Um, yeah, and we're very impressed by good, good, like, good words, someone who has good words for us. But yet there's sometimes people that are hidden right around that are actually modeling really healthy, good lives that we overlook because we, we were drawn towards the people that have the platform or the microphone or the, the good words to add to, the, to our lives, the good life hacks. What else? That will remain nameless. That's really interesting. Yeah. Another like revert another example of reversal in the kingdom. Anyone else? One more maybe? Yeah, Brian. It's all right. Uh-huh. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The self-protection. Yeah. 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 Trying, living as a distinct people so easily succumbs to becoming self-protect, like self-protecting. And you're constantly trying to balance that line of how do you be live distinct and yet not separate from. Because even here, uh, interesting, he just, as a side note, Mark says, all f- and he's, Jesus deemed all foods clean. It's like, hey, let me just throw that in there real quick. Uh, <laughs> And he's talking to his audience, right, who are uh, um, a Jewish audience, maybe. And so they're, you know, remember, think of the story of Peter, Peter with Cornelius, and he's getting this vision, and he's like, what in the world's going on? But right here, Jesus is, like, he, his vision is for all of creation to come and encounter him. And he's, he's getting rid of the categories of clean and unclean. He's taking on people's uncleanliness, right? He's touching people he shouldn't touch, and he's going places he shouldn't go. Because that was the mission all along, was to be distinct for the sake of others, not for self-protection, not to be a fortress from the world. Nobody mentioned this, but I think this is the word, this is my one, my one implication I have thinking about this morning, is to just put this out plainly. Tradition is not inherently wrong or bad. The temptation of this passage is to say, just do away with all tradition. Just focus on the unadulterated word of God. And yet... The word of God always comes to us through a tradition. We're always part of a tradition whether we realize it or not. However, our traditions do have the propensity to become toxic or to become in some ways, uh, they triumph over us just being simply, simply obedient. Like, I want to say this very gently, but even our tradition, Missio Dei, with the story symbols, which I believe more than anybody else in this room, can become in some ways a tool, a tradition that could 
in a sense, usurp the authority of Scripture and even just obedience of what it looks like to follow Jesus. We have great tools, but tools can become idols. Traditions can become things that we worship at the, at the feet of. And I'm going to say this. Uh, I'm feeling prophetic, I guess, this morning, but, not a, not a, but like we naturally as a church often attract idealists, people that love the right ways of doing things, the right way to do church, the right way to do this or that. That's an example here I think Jesus would critique. Like, you're attracted to the ideals. Like, hey, come, you're in the right tradition. But that often can become a guise we wear to not actually be obedient to Jesus and to follow him. And so I just want to give that word to us this morning. Like, let's be mindful of the warning that our tradition can blind us to the ways that God actually wants us to respond in obedience. It can also be a great tool and gift, so don't just throw it all out. Don't become an either-or thinker with this stuff. But I think Jesus could maybe even say that to us. Um, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to give us note of one other passage here and then lead us to the table. There's this really interesting story. It's in Mark chapter 9. And it says this. I think this is maybe a word for us as we think about tradition and the, the tribalism that can come. It says this in, verse, in Mark chapter 9, verse 38. It says, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. I think this, to connect this passage to what we're doing today, this is a great example of Jesus seeing somebody outside of his tribe and his tradition as also offering a way in the kingdom. And for us as a people as we think about missional communities and looking, living faithfully, there's a, there should be great flexibility of what that looks like. Because the kingdom is in a context specifically where, it wants, where the gospel needs to be planted. It's with a particular group of people. And so I just want to encourage us, as we think about the, the tradition and tools we've been given, this great container, I would say, to also, as this, we look towards the fall, as we think about mission, to be ready to be flexible, to be contextual to the places and people we're trying to meet. And not get stuck with the ideal or the tradition or tool as the means or as, as the end instead of the means. And so as we look forward to the fall as missionaries, the warning I think to us is to not fall in love with the tradition or about a set of ideas, but rather to see our tradition as a good container to live faithfully into God's story. But it might look different from community to community. Mission might have a myriad of different ways it makes itself known. And it might even be like a story like this where something that's happening that you don't know what to do with also is part of the kingdom of God, even if it's not the way that we would think the kingdom were to come. Let me lead us to the table this morning. If you want to have the worship team, come on up to the front here. Sarah and Chris Hamilton are going to be serving you guys communion today. I want to lead you to a passage here. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open there. It's Ezekiel 36, verse 24. Ezekiel 36, verse 24.
as Sarah had just mentioned, around healing. Uh, the starting place for us as we come to God is one who is in need of great healing and being greatly unclean, even if we don't use those categories anymore. But listen to what God is doing here, ultimately through Jesus, how he's going to transform, has transformed our hearts of stones into hearts of flesh and given us his spirit. It says this, Ezekiel 36, verse 24, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move to follow you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. We're about ready to practice a tradition, which is to come to this table. Tradition the church has practiced for 2,000 years. And yes, the tradition can become rote. It can become something that we idolize or make something that it's not. But the tradition of coming to the table and remembering Jesus' body and blood is supposed to deeply form us and remind us that our hearts have been transferred from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. The Spirit of God has been given to us, and we come to the table now clean. Uh, even the story of the Syrophoenician woman, I won't get into all the details of it. She's, it says she came, or they had this conversation about dogs and about beggars, and it's really fascinating. I don't even know all the answers. You can ask Chris Hamilton later. That's what I do when I don't know something. But the beauty of the story is that even she is welcome to the table. Even in her uncleanliness, she is welcome to come and receive from the King. And so this morning, regardless if you've been following Jesus for a few short days or for your entire life, you're invited to come and receive Jesus' body and blood to remind you of the identity that you've been given, that you didn't have to earn or work for, that you are clean. You have been given a new heart, a heart of flesh that can feel and can live and can function the way God has intended you to, to live. And you've been given His Spirit to be sent out as His missionaries, as His people, to live as a family. And so it's great news that every week we have this simple tradition that we do, this simple tool that reminds us of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so would you stand with me? I'm going to read from us from 1 Corinthians, and then we're going to say together that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's recite together the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come and receive.